Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we meditate tonight on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would open our minds to receive and understand your word by the power of your spirit. Apply that word to our hearts, and may we not fail to respond to it with our lives. And may our response be pleasing in your sight. May it bring glory to you, our God, for we pray in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please open your Bibles again, where we were reading earlier our sermon text, 1 Corinthians 2. We'll read again verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We're gathered together here tonight to remember and to celebrate the cross of Jesus Christ. This cross which is folly, foolishness to the world around us. But for us who believe it is not only the wisdom of God, but also righteousness and sanctification, and redemption. And yet what a strange thing it is that we celebrate Christ's death even more than his birth. Compare this to the other great and celebrated men and women of history. We are far more likely to celebrate their births than their deaths. Only for the great villains of history are their deaths more likely to be remembered. In their case, we remember their deaths simply because we are glad when the world was rid of them. But when it comes to our Lord Jesus Christ, certainly we do celebrate his birth at Christmas time because this was a great miracle. We remember both the incarnation and the virgin birth. And we will celebrate the great miracle of his resurrection this coming Sunday as he shows once and for all that he has conquered sin and death and he has risen never to die again. Christianity is a cross-centered religion, and it is for good reason that the universally recognized symbol of Christianity is the cross. Although this was a Roman instrument of torture and shame, for us, it is God's chosen means of salvation. For it is on the cross where Christ's central work is accomplished, it is on the cross where having borne the wrath of God poured out on our sins, Jesus Christ there taking that in our stead, he cries out, it is finished. Salvation is accomplished. And so even in our Christmas sermons, 
We often say as we celebrate Jesus' birth that Jesus was born so that he might die. He was born so that he might go to the cross and that for us, for you and for me. That's why Paul reminds the Corinthians here in this passage that he knew nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's my goal here as I preach to you tonight as we meditate on the cross of Christ this Good Friday and we reflect on this passage of Scripture before us to know nothing but Jesus Christ crucified. Our sermon will be in two parts tonight. First, we'll look at this text before us, 1 Corinthians 2, reflecting on Paul's cross-centered preaching. And second, we'll consider what does it look like to follow Paul's pattern today? What does it look like for you to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified? So first, let's consider Paul's Christ's cross-centered preaching. These five verses can be broken up into three sections, the content, the form, and the power. First, we have the content, Jesus Christ crucified, verses 1 and 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In verse 1, Paul says he came to Corinth proclaiming the testimony of God. This was not Paul's own message, but a message from the Almighty, from the one true living God, the creator of heavens and the heavens and the earth. God has borne testimony. He is the witness. He has spoken concerning ultimate things, concerning the most important question a man can ask. What must I do to be saved? And this is what Paul had proclaimed to the Corinthians. This and nothing else, nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For the only way to be saved is to trust in the crucified Savior. Immediately before Paul went to Corinth, he had spent some time in Athens, that great city of the Greek philosophers. And concerning the culture in Athens, Luke comments, Acts 17, 21. Now all the Athenians and there and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I don't know what you think. This, to me, sounds like a perfect description of our smartphone-driven, social media-obsessed world today. People spend their time in nothing except scrolling their feeds, searching for and tweeting about anything and everything new or newsworthy. I'm here to tell you tonight that the gospel of Jesus Christ is news and it is good news. It is the best news that you will ever hear. It's the promise that if you repent of your sins and put your trust In the crucified Son of God, your sins will be washed away and you will be reconciled with your Creator. The war is over and peace is here. 
It's good news. It is news, and yet it is also the old, old story, the same unchanging gospel that Paul preached 2,000 years ago. And in fact, the same unchanging promises that even Abraham believed 2,000 years before that. And Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. And so whether you take the 4,000-year-old promises to Abraham or the 2,000-year-old gospel in the New Testament, either way, this is the good news that the world is longing to hear. Post that on your social media feed. That's the content. Nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Next we have the form of his preaching, verses 3 and 4. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul speaks of his weakness here. We're not exactly sure what he's referring to. We know from his letter to the Galatians that he was suffering some sort of physical illness when he visited that church. And the same may have been true when he visited Corinth as well. Certainly we know all the beatings that Paul suffered throughout his life must have taken their toll on his body, not to mention all the constant traveling, all while he worked hard with his hands to support himself. Nevertheless, whatever it was, he preached in weakness. And to add to that, he speaks of his fear and much trembling. What's this? Fear and trembling is the appropriate response to the awe-provoking holiness of our thrice-holy God. And God's holiness must have been driven home to Paul's heart as he preached daily about Christ's sufferings for us on the cross. But just think about it. Why did Christ have to die? Why was the cross necessary for our salvation? A God who is not holy and righteous could perhaps simply pardon sin on a whim, just delete it, and it would disappear. End of story. But that would not be a holy and righteous God. But we have a God who is both holy and righteous, who is a just God, and for our God, justice must be satisfied. Sin must be dealt with. And that is why Christ came. In order for our sins to be forgiven, they must be punished, either in the sinner or in a substitute, in a sin bearer. And that's what Christ accomplished on the cross. Our sins were transferred to another. Our sins were placed on Christ, and he bore the penalty in our place on the cross. And because he died, we can live. Because he suffered, we are forgiven. And God remains perfectly just, perfectly holy. And therefore, as Paul preaches of Christ crucified, he trembles in fear. Next, Paul says his message was not Implausible words of wisdom. In verse 1, he said he did not use lofty speech. 
It's not that Paul was anti-intellectual. We know he was a brilliant thinker and theologian. It was not that he lacked the ability to produce lofty speech. It was rather that he deliberately chose, he deliberately rejected such means for proclaiming Christ. When you preach to the common man, the elites may despise you, but they don't fail to understand what you are saying. However, the reverse is not true. If you use big words, if you use fancy rhetoric, then perhaps you impress the educated. The majority of the people that you are trying to reach will have no idea what you are saying. And so simple preaching. This was the method for preaching embraced by the Puritans in England. They called it simple Experiential preaching, preaching to the common man, not to the academics, not to the philosophers, but preaching so that everyone could understanding, so that everyone could hear and believe the gospel. The point of this, where Paul's heading in verse 5, the point of this is that when the preacher preaches in weakness, with fear and trembling at the holiness of God, with simple words, and yet The powerful message of Christ crucified shines through. This demonstrates the spirit and the power of God. And so Paul says, he preaches this way, verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Of course, Paul knows that it's only through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit That a person is born again, born from above, and so puts his faith in Jesus Christ. And yet his point here still stands. For he wants those who hear him and believe to know that their faith is not due to his persuasive speaking, his persuasive speaking, that he somehow talked them into belief. But that their faith stands in spite of his weak, trembling. And simple words, their faith can only be attributed to the powerful working of God's Spirit. Some say, when Paul speaks, he refers to the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. In verse 4, he is speaking to his ministry of miracles. It's very likely that Paul did miracles in Corinth as he had the signs of an apostle and his ministry was accompanied by miracles. He often would heal people along with his preaching. I do not believe that's what he's referring to here. It's true that miracles are a demonstration of the power of God. They were a proof of the authority of the apostles. But here, Paul is speaking of a different proof of the power of God. Here he's referring to the powerful working of the Spirit demonstrated through the power of the preaching of the gospel to convert sinners, to bring the dead to new life in Christ. And how powerful it is when God uses a weak, poor, sinful man speaking in the most inelegant way and yet preaching about the Son of God crucified for the sake of sinners. This good news is something that God is pleased to use to demonstrate his power. This is the gospel seed that 
when it is scattered abroad. God is pleased to water it, to cause it to take root, to grow up, and to bear fruit 30, 60, even a hundredfold, all to the glory of God. And this is why Paul says, I am pleased to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. This is why he preached Christ in weakness, while trembling in fear, not in lofty speech or elegant wisdom, but with simplicity. Also that when sinners believed, they would know it was the power of the Spirit of God that was at work, and God alone would receive all the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. That's what it looked like for, for Paul to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified in Corinth 2,000 years ago. Now let's consider what does it look like for you to follow his example today. Here again, I want to consider this under three points. To trust in Christ crucified, to live as, to live as crucified with Christ, and to remember Christ crucified in the Lord's Supper. So first, trust Jesus Christ crucified. This was, of course, Paul's main message to the Corinthians. It was also the first message proclaimed by Christ's apostles from Pentecost forward. At the very center of their message, in the very beginning, was the crucifixion, the cross of Christ. Consider the closing words of Paul's, uh, Peter's Pentecost sermon and the dialogue that follows in Acts chapter 2. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucify. It's the last word of his sermon. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. As Acts chapter 2, Peter goes on to preach a very similar message in Acts chapter 4. Notice again the centrality of the cross. Let it be known to all of you, And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucify, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so, Peter called them, repent and believe, trust in this name, the only name in which salvation is found. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ that you might be saved? There is salvation in no one else, nowhere else. Trust in Christ, trust in him alone. And then trusting in him, live as crucified with Christ. Paul writes about this primarily in his letters to the Galatians and to the Romans. He uses this language to describe the new life in Christ 
which leads to a life of holiness and righteousness, putting sin to death and becoming more and more like Christ. So he writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The crucified and risen Christ is the center of your life, the power of your life. This must change your entire way of living. So Paul writes in Galatians 5.24, this is immediately following the fruit of the Spirit. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Not only does the Spirit produce good fruit in the believer, but the cross-centered life crucifies the sinful desires of the old nature. We see similar things in Romans chapter 6, but here the emphasis is not only on dying with Christ, the cross, but also being raised to newness of life. So Romans 6, 1 through 4, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In this passage, Paul is saying that through faith you have entered into a spirit-wrought union with Christ. You are united to him in his death on the cross and in his resurrection to new life. And this radically changes your relationship to sin, to that old way of life. You are no longer a slave to sin. And now you are dead to sin, alive to Christ. He is now your Lord and your master. And so don't obey your old master. Don't obey sin. Live this new life. Live as a servant of Christ. That's what it means to live as crucified and risen with the crucified and risen Christ. Third and final point tonight. Do this in remembrance of me. Later in this letter, we've been looking at 1 Corinthians. Paul will rebuke the Corinthians for their failure to practice the Lord's Supper in a proper manner. He'll also instruct them in the true significance of this sign and seal of the new covenant. He writes 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 25. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Notice in these verses, the Lord says we receive both the bread and the wine in remembrance of him. And so as we partake of these elements, they bring to our, our minds, they remind us the sacrifice of our Lord on the cross, how he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. And so as we partake of the supper, we receive the grace that strengthens us to walk as disciples of Christ. But we are not only passive receivers in the supper, but Paul goes on to say that we are active proclaimers in verse 26. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, you see the table which is set before you tonight, the table of Jesus Christ crucified for you. So that's my closing exhortation tonight. Come to the table tonight, trusting in Christ, living in Christ. And as you eat and drink tonight in remembrance of him, proclaiming nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, crucified for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a wondrous thing it is that we can celebrate the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross to pay penalty for our sins, and that we can celebrate such a thing because we know that he rose again from the dead three days later, that he has conquered sin and death, he has now ascended, and he will come again. And so even this cross is a victory, a victory over sin and death. And even this cross, he cried out, it is finished. And so we rejoice and we give you all the thanks and all the praise and all the glory. What a demonstration it is of your love, of your mercy and your grace on sinners like us. May we grow to appreciate it more and more. Would you deepen our faith and help us even as we come to the table tonight for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.